Well, good morning. It's been a joy already, huh? And, uh, you know, was a year ago, I was speaking a message here on Sunday morning in this room, and uh, we were talking about having a passion for people that need Jesus, that, that have never heard his name. And, uh, and it was a very passionate sermon, so I thought. And uh, afterwards, I, I received a lot of emails, and I thought, oh, man, so it really resonated. And, and as I read each email, it was all about the ducklings that were born outside that window <laughs> over there. And, uh, and, I, and I was like, man, we're, you know, I'm thinking this is about the loss for Jesus and it was about the ducklings that were born out there that if somebody doesn't rescue them from out of there, there's no food over there, they will die. And so true like ducks, that mother duck returned this year, laid her eggs, sat on them out there, and we this time knew we need to watch out to, for when those ducklings are born because they cannot upstand the pastor. So... Having said that, they were successfully born a week ago or a couple weeks ago, and they were removed safely with their mom. They took a little tour through the building and out the doors, and, uh, and so they didn't take a bulletin on their way out or anything like that, but uh, nonetheless, they are safe, and I speak of ducks because in two weeks, if you show up here to this building at this time, uh, you will find us to not be here. Uh, we will be at the park. Uh, we will have the service at 1030 and followed with baptisms, food, and fun together. It's an opportunity to invite people that maybe you've built relationships with that don't have a church home. Uh, perhaps they don't even know Jesus. It's a perfect Sunday for that, to bring them. The cards that you can see out in the lobby are meant to be an invitational card and also a reminder card for you to not show up here, uh, but to go there. And so uh, we're going to spend our time with the ducks there. Uh, there will be lots of them. Uh, they are very excited. It's spring. And uh, so we get to join them in God's sanctuary. So if you're new here, my name is Tony. And uh, our pattern here is we, when we preach, we preach from the word of God, so we will open it, and we are in the book of James. And so if I'm going to ask you to turn there at this time to the book of James, is towards the back of your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4. While you're turning there uh, or utilizing a Bible app, uh, last week we were continuing the, the, the mindset that James is bringing out multiple issues that can create a faith uh, hindrance, it, and it often dealt with this nature that we have, this uh, flesh that we have that wants to set itself against God, because our flesh, our nature, is all about ourselves. It's not about surrendering to something else, let alone God. And so James helps us work through those issues, identifying many of them. Uh, some of it has to do with, a lot of it has to do with heart relation, uh, motivations, what our ambitions are about. Uh, and so often again, our ambitions are about ourselves. And this past week, it literally, he got, <laughs> he got really serious when he said, when we operate with selfish ambition, and it's all about ourselves, and we even ask God for things so that we can spend it on things of our own desire and wants, that it's like asking God to invest in something that's going to be used against him. And so he was, James was confronting us very lovingly and saying, we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge that so much of what we do is just about our own end, our own gain, our own success. And with God, we need to actually put him first. And usually what that means is when we get successful, it's not only us individually being successful, but because of God's ways, it brings others along with us. And so we resist Satan and we submit to the Lord. We draw near to God and let him lift us up, not us picking up our own boots, ourselves by our own bootstraps, but letting him pull us up by our bootstraps. And so that was where we were last week. Today, continuing forward, uh, we are going to uh, continue that thought, but now it's packing on to what, how our mouths literally create a hindrance between us and others. 
But it's, not, it's more than just the tongue that we referred to in chapter 3 a few weeks ago when Jeff spoke. But this is actually getting into speaking against a person, slandering a person, and how that can cause fights and quarrels between us and others and with God. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 4, and then we'll skip after verse 1 to verses 11 and 12. So verse 1, James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? All right, so James identifies that the root of every fight and quarrel between us and other people or between us and God can be found that at its root, it began with someone operating by their wants, their desires as being the most important thing. And when that happens, it creates conflict with other people and conflict with God. Sometimes it's two people being motivated by their own wants and their desires, and so the clash happens because of that. But regardless, we can trace every conflict, relational conflict, to a want or desire taking precedent or authority over any other relationship. So that's what he says in verse 1. And then we taught through verse 10 last week. Now let's skip to still under that question that wants and desires create conflict. Look at verse 11. Brothers and sisters. Again, this is speaking to the church. So church, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister in the church or judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you are sitting in judgment on it or over it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. There is only one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, so under the context of what creates fights and quarrels among the people of the church, it's wants and desires, it's a selfish gain, a selfish ambition. And so then he says how that also can manifest, how these quarrels happen, is that when people in the church, brothers and sisters, slander one another. So I will say this, you can tell when a person's ambition is selfish or prideful because they have a tendency of speaking poorly of other people. It's just true. Selfish ambition and pride will lead to a tendency to speak poorly of other people. So when we are all about ourselves and it's about our own personal passions and pursuit, when people get in the way of it, or we don't like somebody that might be near us, we will then slander them. We'll speak poorly of them. When they're not around, we make sure they get lowered and that we get raised up. This is what happens when it's all about you. Additionally, the second phrase in, in verse 11, it says, and anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or slanders a brother or sister or judges them, so adding another term, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. Okay, so if selfish ambition and pride lead to a tendency of, again, speaking poorly of other people, a person who is about themselves, that is self-dependent, is more likely to also judge other people, okay? So the tendency of an ambitious, selfishly ambitious person is to speak poorly of other people. That's where slander comes in. But it's also true that they're likely to judge them. They've evaluated them. And they've said, you're not as good as me. That's in essence what happens when we judge is we set ourselves up as superior and they become inferior to us, all right? So that's the second part of this is that it leads to judging. But it says another thing attached to it, that when we slander someone and when we judge them and we, come, we become a fear, a superior to them, that another thing that happens is that we then set ourselves 
over them and the law. Okay? So look at what it said. It says that when you uh, speak against a brother or sister or judge them, you are also speaking against or slandering the law and, it's ju- and judges it. So in other words, you have just been, by being a judge of a fellow believer, not only are you raising yourself over them, but you've raised yourself over the law. We have convinced ourselves then that we are more capable of true justice than the law itself. When we do that, when we judge another person and we determine a verdict about another individual and we're not even talking to them, we're, we're judging from afar, we're speaking against them from afar, we're, we're slandering them from afar. When we do that, we have said, the law is incapable of rendering true justice, but I am. I am more capable. And so therefore, I've set myself over them and I've spoken against the law as well. The next phrase gets even more harsh. Okay, so when it says, you're not only keeping the law, when you judge the law, so again, if you judge a person, he's saying you've now also judged them and the law. By doing that, when you judge the law, you're not keeping the law. You are actually sitting in judgment on it. So now you're rendering a verdict about the law. That it's not strong enough in your opinion. It's not capable enough in your opinion. Seeing where this is going, who wrote the law? God wrote the law. So if you, by judging another person, James is saying, by you setting yourself over another person and you're saying you are superior, they're inferior, you are slandering them from afar, you're speaking against them. By doing that, you're doing that against the law itself. And he then connects the dots that by judging fellow believers, you are no longer submitting to the law. You are now authoritative over that law. And if you're authoritative over that law, you have just taken authority over God. Whew, okay. So, what is James trying to do here? He is trying to put the fear of God into us. When we choose to slander a fellow brother or sister in Christ. He is trying to put the fear of God in us that when we look down upon a brother or sister and think more highly of us, he is putting the fear of God in us that when we do that, we are in essence saying we are stronger and better and more justice capable than God himself. makes you a little bit queasy about ever saying anything to another person that would suggest that they're doing wrong. Then he goes on in verse 12. He's not holding back. He says, there is only one lawgiver. There is only one judge. And there is only one capable of saving and destroying. So in other words, there is only one who is the lawgiver. There is only one who is the judge, and there is only one who has the capability of giving a true, just-oriented verdict. And that's God. It's not us. In fact, he goes on to say with another rhetorical question, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? If there's only one Lawgiver, and there's only one judge and only one capable of rendering a just verdict. Who are you to think you're the one? And all of this stems from the mindset that says, I can judge another person. They are lesser. I am greater. And, and just so you, we get honest here, there's not a person in this room that is not guilty of doing this. Do we not, on a day-to-day basis, make judgments about people around us? It's natural. It happens. And 
where he's going in this is he's talking about what causes fights and quarrels among you in the church. It's wants and desires battling within you that creates this. And part of that is when we begin to think of ourselves so highly that we speak against another brother or sister in Christ and we slander them with other people all in the name of righteousness. Well, you know, they're not exactly walking with the Lord right now. And then you start making all kinds of judgments about them under that coverage because it sounds really holy. My guess is not only have each of us been guilty at some point of doing this, but we've also been victims of people that have done that about us. So we've both been guilty and victimized by people within the church rendering verdicts about us from afar and speaking about us with someone else. And when we do that, James is saying, you have chosen to take authority over the law and ultimately authority over God. That's it. There is nothing more to add to what James has said. And I have 20 minutes left, actually more. But I think if we end there, then I would be how should I say it? Empowering those of you that are hearing me to live out the Lancaster culture of passive aggressiveness in regards to human conflict. Because when I say passive aggressive, isn't it true that our culture that we live in, of which now I've lived 12 years, so I'm as much a part of experiencing as anybody, and maybe even at times living it out, Passive-aggressive says, I just passively respond to when things ruffle my feathers around me. And, and, and I say nothing, but meanwhile, I'm getting more and more angry and more and more turned off. And then all of a sudden, there's either a shunning or an explosion. And then you wonder, like, where did this come from? And it not only fractures relationships, it ends them. So, the rea again, reality is, in that passive-aggressive tendency is we withhold things that are very important. We withhold from opportunities of helping one another. So, based on what James is saying, how is it that we can hold each other accountable in the body of Christ and not be found guilty of slander or judgment? How can we keep the church from being the wild west where we just are left to our own selfish behaviors if we do not allow for some level of human engagement, personal engagement as brothers and sisters in the Lord to confront one another when there is error? So I believe we need to make sure that we understand the scope by which James is speaking. He is speaking about slander. He is speaking about judgment, of which, when it's most likely in error and sinning, as he's describing, is happening when you're not speaking directly to the person. You're not in their presence. You're not doing anything to build them up. You're doing everything to tear them down from afar. And I don't believe you're gonna find permission to do that anywhere else in scripture. But I do believe that there is more to understand about what guardrails are actually there for confronting each other. In scripture, we're given so many one another's. Love one another. Have mercy towards one another. Grieve with one another. Exhort one another. Confess to one another. One of my favorites coming from the West, spur one another <laughs> towards love and good deeds. We're called to have delight with one another, but also to push and challenge one another. How can we do that and not be guilty of taking authority over God and over his law? So to make sure that we get this straight and not become passive aggressive, Let's bring in Paul to the equation 
and we'll end with Jesus. Are you okay with ending with Jesus? All right. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles back to the left, 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 2. And we're going to start by reading at the end of verse 10. All right. So here we go. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we can then understand what, uh, what God has freely given us. Verse 13, this is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Now, this next phrase is so key. The person then with the Spirit, makes judgments about all things. And such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, so we're gonna read another passage, but I want you to remember the phrase, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Turn to chapter four. Paul's continuing on. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mystery that God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, and remember this phrase, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will be the one who exposes the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So you've heard, the person with the Spirit judges, makes judgments about all things. Chapter four, he says, judge nothing before the appointed time. Now chapter five, at the end of it, verses 12 and 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So expel the wicked person from among you. Okay, chapter two, Paul says, the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things. Chapter four, he says, I don't even judge myself. So therefore don't judge anything, judge nothing. So, judgment's about all things we're supposed to do. Chapter four, judge nothing. Chapter five, judge those inside the church. Just by short reading, you would assume here in this moment that Paul is having a mental health moment. Make up your mind, Paul. Are we supposed to make judgments about all things or are we supposed to judge nothing? Are we supposed to listen to James, who is the leader of the church at this time, who says we're not to judge our brothers and sisters lest we, we become authoritative over God? But then Paul says we must judge those inside the church. God will handle those outside the church. How do we apply all of this? That's why it's really important to go into the text and get context. So chapter two. What we're looking at here is we're looking for guardrails 
rules, boundaries for how we confront one another. Because as I said earlier, if we do not have some level of mutual accountability with one another, the church becomes the wild west. And we all suffer for it because each of us are blind to ourselves. And if we don't have somebody speaking into our lives, we're the lesser for it. We miss out. And so there's gotta be some guardrails then how to do it as it's intended to be done. So with Paul, what we have here is that in this text, in chapter two, the first guardrail he gives is that when we are a child of God, when we've given our lives to Jesus, we're given the Holy Spirit, and that spirit is meant to be our counselor, our guide into how to live each and every day. So in regards to whether things are moral or immoral, good or bad, or better versus worse, we fortunately get the blessing of the Spirit's counsel. The world will look upon the things of the Spirit and, and, and think it's foolish. In fact, they'll look at a person that's living by the Spirit as being very countercultural and hard to understand. And then they just assume because it's something they don't, that they don't understand and they're ignorant of, that they assume it must be foolish. And Paul says here, they don't understand because they don't have the Spirit. But the person with the Spirit, if we submit to the Spirit's leadership, then we are capable then of making judgments about all things. Because left to our own spirit and left to ourselves, we are capable of judgment, but not accurately, not consistently, and we certainly are gonna be blinded by our own ambitions. But by the Spirit who isn't fallible, He's infallible. His leadership, if we're submitting to it, will help us then make judgments about all things. But in this text, look what it said. So the person, verse 15, the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person, the person with the spirit is not subject to human judgments. Okay, so there's something going on here that says it requires a work of the Spirit for us to, to speak into each other's lives in a manner that God intended. So we can't go just half-cocked, angry, angry at someone. We need to somehow be under the leadership of the Spirit before we talk to somebody about an error, a flaw, or a mistake that they may have made. Chapter 2, or in chapter 4, What's going on there? So if the first one is we need to be under the leadership of the Spirit when, when talking to somebody about an error or a problem that they might have. Uh, so, but there's a second thing that's at play in this where it, there's a limitation. What's going on in chapter four is that in chapter one, Paul says there are divisions in the church because some of them were big fans of Apollos who was a godly leader in the church, and some were big fans of Paul, a godly leader in the church. And so what they started doing is dividing over who they most liked. And so those who were big fans of Apollos would say to each other and about Paul, well, Paul's a little rough around the edges. You know, Paul actually killed Christians to start. And yada, yada. They just keep bringing in all the things that maybe Paul's not good at so that they can make Apollos better. So Paul, under that context, is saying, now, I care very little. Again, verse three, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. Now hear this. My conscience is clear. Paul is speaking. I think I'm innocent, but that doesn't make me so. That doesn't make me so. And so he says, judge nothing before the point in time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness that we can't even see about ourselves. And God will be the one to expose the motives of a person's heart. At that time, God will take care of the business. So the second guardrail is this. So after we respond, it's like, okay, we're gonna let the spirit lead how we engage one another. But secondly, we cannot and should not judge the motives or condition of a person's heart. 
It's not fair territory. Because Paul's even saying here, listen, I can even assume that as I'm going to somebody that I'm the innocent one. And that's not necessarily true because we can often self-deceive because we have a high view of ourselves, right? And so we're always gonna give ourselves a pass. So if it's possible for us to think of ourselves as innocent, but not necessarily so, how then can we possibly accurately, justly judge the motives of another person's heart? It's impossible, but God can. So the second guardrail is to let God judge the motives of the heart. That's not our territory. That's God territory. Motives are God's territory. Chapter five. What's going on there? They says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked brother from among you or the wicked person. So what was going on is there was a sinful issue that everybody that had the spirit would know that is sin. It was common in culture of Corinth for there to be Relations that are inappropriate between family members. That's the culture of Corinth. But in the church, with the outside the church, you're just, you're gonna give them Jesus. You wanna tell them about Jesus so that he can rescue them from them things. But you don't start with all the list of sins with them. You start with you're a sinner, you need Jesus. And what they're saying here is that, okay, outside the church, that might be the, mo- the, the mode of operation. But inside the church, you cannot tolerate that sin. You, are, you have to live in Corinth and understand that that's going on around you. That's part of it. We, we live in a very beautiful area, but we live among sinners. We live among a culture that does not honor God. That's nothing new under the sun. We're not the newest great disappointment in God's eyes as a nation. Sin has been wreaking havoc since the beginning. That's why the Noah experience happened is because things were awful. That's why God kept bringing judgment over Israel because things were awful. That's why Sodom and Gomorrah found their end because things were awful. And yes, even today, things can be awful in our own country. But we speak Jesus out there. And then with each other, you know Jesus. So we appeal to Jesus' character in confronting one another when there's overt sin. And there was sin going on between family members and they were turning a blind eye to it. And he says, are we not called to call that sin, bring a judgment on the sin? Now, it's not saying that you're judging the heart or the motives although you can see evidence of those things, you're calling out the behavior. All right, so we let God judge the motives of the heart and we can judge behavior within the church, but we let God handle those outside the church. So that's the third guardrail. So we are allowed to guard, to judge each other by the behaviors so that we can help one another become more and more like Jesus. That's the motive why we would ever do such a thing. But now we need to talk about the guardrail of how to do that and do that well. Because we could be pretty harsh in our calling out sinful behavior to each other. Many of us who were sinning and rightfully being called out by church people for our sin, though also got harmed by the way we were called out. So Part of the guardrails need to be the behavior of how we do this. So let's go to Matthew chapter seven and hear from Jesus on that. So turn in your, to the left in your scriptures. Go to Matthew chapter seven. Jesus speaks to this very thing and you'll probably see a heading on your scriptures on the page referring to the first uh, six verses as being about judging others. We're only gonna read the first uh, five verses. Says, Jesus speaking, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured towards you. So why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Hmm, isn't that something? You hypocrite. First, 
Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let me stop there. So what's Jesus saying? That there is a key step that needs to happen before any of us go to each other. All right? And that is do a self-check. Do a self-check. Not only for is there sin in your life that maybe you're ignoring, that's gonna make it impossible for them to hear you because they see you ignoring it. Is there a spirit issue by how you're wanting to address them? Is this all about your own positioning with them? Are you being prideful in your attempt to wanna address them? So are you yielding your spirit to God's spirit? And then attitude. Not only spirit, but attitude. Are you willing to go to a brother humbly? Because then you realize when you've done that self-check, you start realizing, you know, I'm guilty of this as well at times. And as a result of coming to that place, the spirit then by which you would go to an individual to help them see a sinful issue is gonna be way different than if you had just gone to them and you're motivated by just simply the ambitious spirit that you carry. And then all you do is bring a sword that cuts. You do nothing that brings something that will build, convict, and restore. So Jesus understands that yes, we are to confront one another, we're to help one another. And if we don't, we all suffer for it. I mean, think about this for a moment. How many times in your life has somebody that is of God, that you would call godly, spoken wisdom into your life that you know was addressing a sin or a weakness in you? What if they had not? What if the church, that brother or sister in Christ, had withheld from you the wisdom that they were offering you? What would be the net result of your life? What if your parents choose to not be godly parents and they only tell you the things that are affirming? We celebrate you. Way to be born. We celebrate you. But we do nothing to speak to their character. Do nothing to say the hard things that they need to hear to grow. We're gonna raise very self-centered people that are quite frankly gonna become enemies of God. So, here's the challenge, the final point. We need to be in the spirit before we say anything. Let me make sure that there's spiritual wisdom being applied. Secondly, we're not gonna go to the matters of the heart or, or in the sense of motives. That's God territory. And when we go to them, we're gonna be humble and we're gonna begin with ourselves. We're gonna bring to account each other humbly because we're both sinners. But lastly, sometimes, even when we do it by the Spirit, we don't judge the motives at all and we do things as what Christ says we should do by doing the self-check first and we even do it humbly with them. Sometimes you hear from them, I could care less what you have to say. Or I reject that because you get defensive and you don't like to hear something negative because maybe you grew up in a home where you, they never told you anything that was hard to hear. And now a brother or sister in Christ who's learned more wisely to receive those things speaks into your life and you're just like, that is not your role. The problem is you see their sin is destroying them. So what do you do? Chapter 18 of Matthew. So just turn a few pages to the right. Some of you already know where this is going because you hear Matthew 18, you automatically hear church discipline. It's one of the greatest benefits of becoming a member of LAFC. <laughs> Come tonight, become a member, and then we can judge you, biblically, of course. There's more to this text that we need to hear. Verse 13 or 15. If your brother or sister, again, within the church, if someone in the church sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church 
And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Hmm. So sometimes it's necessary that when we're trying to help a brother or sister see an error in their life that is harming them and harming others, we have to seek help from other brothers and sisters in Christ to bring someone into a better place with God. And if this is being done in the manner of, in the spirit of Matthew 7, Jesus' words as well, then the way the one person went to them directly will be humble. It'll be for their betterment and their goal is to help that individual. And if the spirit of God is still leading in this, when they bring two or three others, it's the same humble spirit. It's an appeal to them to turn back towards God, to not harm themselves any further. And we trust that at some point we'll win that brother over. But here's the challenge. In the same way that Paul says, let God judge those outside the church. When the person who is responding to the church and continues to reject, when they've had a person come to them and they rejected it, they had two or three come to them and they rejected it. And then the church says, we appeal to you, please turn back to God. And they reject it. It says that they must then leave the church. And here's where, again, Lancaster County gets this wrong. We shun them is how we practice this in today's culture of our region. We shun them, we kick them out, and we treat them with disdain. Here's the thing. When you send somebody outside the church, they now take the posture of someone that's in need of Jesus. When you have somebody in your relational world that needs Jesus, do you treat them with shunning? Or do you appeal to them with the gospel? So what happens when we kick somebody out, like we have to do the hard thing, we've gone through the three phases of this, humbly appealing to them, and they choose to continue to reject, then, then yes, they are removed from membership here at LAFC, but then what do we do? We start reaching out to them for needing Jesus. Because that's what we do, and that's what God does. When somebody doesn't have Jesus, what is he doing? He is orchestrating things around that individual so that they hear about the good news of Jesus and they're called into it. The beautiful thing is when somebody has been removed from the church and is restored to the church. And in those stories, there is always an operation towards the gospel. People don't return because they're shunning. They return because there's gospel. There's good news. This is about Jesus. So when James confronts this, he acknowledges that it's a bad territory to slander from afar, to judge from afar. We're in reality called to go to one another, to help one another, uh, pursue Jesus all the more. We need to speak into each other's lives so that they know Jesus all the more. That's our role. Amen? Let's pray. So God... I acknowledge that we fail at this. We don't do a very good job of it. And even when I know these texts and try to operate by them, there's still the tendency to lose that, that submission to spirit and we become harsh. We can be straightforward with truth and not be harsh. It might be received as harsh, but Lord, there's that tension and, and we just don't operate well. We don't receive correction well. We don't give correction well. Humble our spirits because we need your work in each of our lives and you, we need your work through each of our lives to each other because the spirit that's in each of us can speak to the spirit that's in each of us and that's what we need for our own sake. So Jesus, permeate our hearts with you that every knee in this room will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. In your name I pray, amen. Would you stand and join us as we respond to what we just received in song?
over every enemy Jesus for my family I speak the holy name Jesus oh, shout Jesus from the mountains Jesus in the streets Jesus in the darkness over
the opportunity to practice that immediately. If, if there is something that has been a burden on your heart and you feel like you need wisdom or prayer uh, over that where you hear from a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, we'll have people in the encounter room that would be glad to provide that for you. I'll be up front as well. Uh, and, and we want to just be humbly there with you. This isn't about judgment. This is about helping one another be strong and having each other's back, quite frankly, is how it plays out. We also know that it's a journey to get to that place relationally. You can't just walk into a church and all of a sudden experience that. It takes time. And so that's why we do things to build rapport and relationships. So on your way out the door today, you got two opportunities. You got the opportunity to grab a card as an invite to Sunday in the Park. But you also have the opportunity uh, to sign up for an interest group. Because uh, we recognize sometimes the easiest relationships to build are with those that you connect over something that you like doing together. So I will be a part of the golf uh, interest group and uh, we'll get to know each other on that course. I can tell you there are relationships that have been formed through the golf course interest group uh, that have formed relationships where they can speak into one another. And so these are just bridges to a greater end. And I know there's several different interests out there. Some of you like convertibles and like bringing the top down on the car. And, and that's one of them out there as well. Yeah, amen. And uh, so you can sign up for that. Again, it's all about connection. So let's go out of here. Armed with the good news of Jesus, we speak Jesus into things, not our condemnation, not our judgment of their heart. We speak truth that will build them up. Amen? amen. You are dismissed. God bless and enjoy this beautiful day. <laughs>